What should you do if you own a famous bar and your bartenders decide to have a your name here reunion at a competitor's establishment? That's what I'll be talking about on this episode of It's the Keith Law PLLC podcast and I'm Jason Keith, attorney in Houston, Texas. Keith Law is a Texas-based law firm that helps businesses protect and enhance their competitive advantages by assisting with trademark issues and identifying and protecting trade secrets. The firm's goal is to help businesses prevent and address business problems, and I hope this podcast will do the same. The structure of this episode will include a fact pattern, a discussion of the law, a woulda, coulda, shoulda, and why, and a practical approach to dealing with the fact pattern, followed by a likely outcome. After that, I'll summarize the episode, and thank you for listening. Here's the fact pattern. You own a famous bar, you haven't registered your trademarks with either the Texas Secretary of State or the United States Patent and Trademark Office, and your bartenders decide to have a reunion advertised as the name of your bar reunion at a competitor's establishment. The risk that you perceive is that A, it could possibly tarnish your reputation, meaning having this event somewhere else where you can't control, you don't have any quality control, and B, it could misappropriate profits that should be coming to your establishment, but instead will be going to your competitor. We can look at a lot of different possibilities for applicable law in this situation. Um, I, I'm not going to be talking about the right to publicity, tortious interference with business relations, fiduciary duties, or the broader discussion of unfair competition. I will be talking about trademark and unfair competition in the context of trademark. Unlike copyrights and patents, trademark is not mentioned in the Constitution. Instead, trademark is a creature of common law, state statutes, and federal statutes. The federal trademark statute is called the Lanham Act, L-A-N-H-A-M. It's still the largest area of, of law here. Four causes of action or areas under the Lanham Act include one, false designation of origin, two, false or misleading descriptions or representations of fact, three, false advertising, and four, dilution. Then under the Texas Trademark Act, we would be looking mainly at infringement or dilution of famous marks, regardless of whether the famous mark was registered or not. Lastly, Texas addresses trademark through common law. Common law is oftentimes referred to as judge-made law. Statutes are created by Congress, but huge areas of law, including torts, have been completely created by judges going all the way back to the British common law. The rights that we're protecting under trademark are a subset of the law of unfair competition. It prohibits causing confusion as to the source to protect the investment of the business and to protect the consumer. And just a quick aside, explaining the difference between patents and trademark protection. Patents protect the substance of a product, the structure of a device, or the method used to accomplish some task. Where trademarks protect a product's configuration or appearance, it only protects the decorative, non-functional elements intended to reveal the product's origin. Trade names represent the goodwill that have been built up over time by the user. Unlike trademarks and service marks, which are used to identify and distinguish the goods or services provided, a trade name is used to identify and distinguish the business itself from other businesses. Distinctive trade names, even if not registrable, are nonetheless entitled to protection under the common law and under the Federal Trademark Act, the Lanham Act. Trade dress is another area we talk about here. Trade dress refers to the total image or overall appearance of a product and often includes features such as size, shape, 
color, color combinations, textures, advertising materials, graphics, sales, and marketing techniques, and layout or floor plans. What is protectable? Only distinctive marks are protectable. Some are inherently distinctive. Others need to show quote unquote secondary meaning to be understood as distinctive. So the five categories, and these fall along a spectrum from fanciful, arbitrary, suggestive to descriptive and generic. Generic marks can never serve as trademarks. They're not protectable. Descriptive marks can when a secondary meaning can be shown. And then one through three, the fanciful, arbitrary, and suggestive, they're inherently distinctive. You don't have to prove a secondary meaning to prove the likelihood of confusion for infringing on those marks. We like to talk about the strength of a mark. That means how protectable it is it in a, an infringement context. And the strength of the mark increases as one moves away from generic and descriptive and, and toward arbitrary and fanciful. An example of a descriptive mark would be a surname used to describe a business. Surnames and terms that reflect the geographic origin of goods or services are descriptive. But surnames can be protected if you can show a secondary meaning. Some of the things we'll look to to determine whether there's a secondary meaning or not are length and manner of the use, the nature and extent of the owner's advertising and promotion of the mark, volume of sales and size of business developed under the mark, owner's efforts to promote a conscious connection in the public's mind between the mark and the product, service, or business in connection with which the mark is used, the exclusivity of the owner's use, the mark's notoriety and reputation, judicial governmental determinations of secondary meaning, direct consumer testimony as to the secondary meaning and consumer survey evidence, proof that the infringer deliberately copied the product or mark, and actual confusion. A common confusion is, hey, if I register this mark, does that prohibit anyone else from using it? The answer is no. The general term that we use is no trade, no trademark. That means use is the pinnacle of trademark protection, and that's a huge difference from patents and copyrights, where you can own a patent and you can own a copyright for a certain amount of time, regardless of whether you use it or not. The touchstone of trademark protection is use of that mark, and like other rights that depend on use, rights in a mark may be lost by abandoning it, acquiescing to someone else's use of it, or latches, which is just an unreasonable delay in enforcing trademark rights. Prior innocent users' common law rights, although neither federal or state registrations destroy the prior innocent users' common law rights, these rights are effectively frozen and are therefore limited to the territory in which that mark was previously used. So if there was a shoemaker named Mr. Nike prior to Nike shoes coming on the scene and registering their marks and using their mark in his Mr. Nike's geographic area, Mr. Nike would still be allowed to use his mark on those shoes in his geographic region, but he's frozen. He can't expand beyond that geography. Unregistered marks can still be infringed upon and infringement claims can be brought under the Lanham Act if the defendant's use of the confusingly similar common law mark constitutes a false representation. You can claim common law and trade name infringement and unfair competition in state and federal court. Infringement in Texas is the unauthorized use of a trademark without the trademark owner's permission. Two questions. One, does the plaintiff have a protectable right in the mark? And two, if the plaintiff has a protectable right, is their infringement as judged by the likelihood of confusion standard as to the source, endorsement, affiliation, or sponsorship of the product? Is the consumer 
likely to be confused about the source of the goods or services, that's infringement. Unfair competition, you still have to show likelihood of confusion, is probable, not just possible. We should also talk about dilution and injury to business reputation. Under the federal law, dilution refers to the lessening of the capacity of a famous mark to identify and distinguish goods or services, regardless of the presence or absence of competition between the owner of the famous mark and the other parties, or two, likelihood of confusion, mistake, or deception. To prove dilution under federal law, the trademark owner must prove one, two, three, and four. One, the mark is famous. Two, the defendant commenced use of the mark likely to cause dilution by blurring or tarnishment. Three, the similarity between the defendant's mark and the plaintiff's mark gives rise to an association between the two marks. And four, the association is likely to impair the distinctiveness of the plaintiff's mark or harm the reputation of the mark. Under the state law, dilution means dilution by blurring or tarnishment without regard to one, two, or three. One, competition between the owner of the famous mark and the other person. Two, actual or likely confusion, mistake, or deception. Or three, actual economic harm. Dilution by blurring means an association that arises from the similarity between a mark or trade name and a famous mark that impairs the famous mark's distinctiveness. Dilution by tarnishment means an association that arises from the similarity between a mark or trade name and a famous mark that harms the famous mark's reputation. Dilution by tarnishment occurs when a mark is linked to products of shoddy quality or is portrayed in an unwholesome or unsavory context so that the public will associate the lack of quality or prestige in the defendant's goods with the plaintiff's unrelated goods. Tarnishment occurs when another uses the plaintiff's mark in a manner that appropriates the goodwill and reputation associated with the mark. For example, a plaintiff's trademarks for a nightclub and logo were diluted by tarnishment with respect to the defendant's nightclub, which had developed a negative reputation. The proximity of the plaintiff's and defendant's clubs established a likelihood that the negative reputation of the defendant's club was also associated with the plaintiff's club. Dilution by blurring occurs only when the plaintiff's mark is used by another as its own trademark, thereby weakening the plaintiff's ability to use the mark as a unique identifier of its goods and services. Remedies. Remedies include damages, injunctions, declaratory relief, cancellation of registrations, and attorney's fees. Then defenses include lack of distinctiveness, prior use, geographically remote use, fair use and nominative use, equitable defenses of latches, acquiescence, unclean hands. There are also defenses of abandonment. In some cases, the First Amendment, parody. I want to take this opportunity to talk about the effect of incorporation filing an assumed name, or approval by a state agency. I've heard some business owners say, I registered or reserved this assumed name, so I don't really need to register my trademark, right? I've already got the protection. The only protection provided by registering the name, a trade name, an assumed name, or a corporation or LLC name with the Secretary of State is the Secretary of State will do a search to avoid other businesses registering under the same name. It does not provide trademark protection in and of itself. So the answer is no. Registering with the Texas Secretary of State as an assumed name, trade name, or corporate entity name does not provide any trademark protection in and of itself. It also doesn't provide any protection against a claim of infringement by someone who is actively holding a trademark in a mark 
similar to, deceptively similar to an LLC or assumed name that you subsequently obtain and register with the Secretary of State. Hopefully I haven't talked in too much detail about the nuances of the law because each situation is different and it's really worth a separate analysis of each fact pattern. But in this case, trademark infringement is a spotted issue that's worth talking about. In the woulda, coulda, shoulda, and why, an existence of a registration under either the federal or Texas law provides prima facie proof of one, two, and three. One, the validity of the registration. Two, the registrant's ownership of the mark. And three, the registrant's exclusive right to use the mark in connection with the specified goods and services. But you might run into roadblocks. The competitor might say, we can use this name because it's descriptive in some way or is a surname. That would push the burden of proof in an infringement case back to the claimant to prove the secondary meaning. Well, now let's talk about a practical approach to this specific fact pattern. What makes sense in terms of trying to prevent your current and former bartenders or servers or other customer-facing people who worked for you, who established relationships with your customer, how can you prevent them from advertising on Facebook or somewhere else that we're going to have a reunion using your business's name? We're going to have a reunion over at this other competitor's location. I think a practical approach includes one, notifying the competitor ahead of time, hey, you're having this event scheduled on this date. They're using my name. Please don't do it. If you do decide to do it, please keep good records of the profits that you make from that event, because I think I might be entitled to those profits if we ended up in court. Warn the bartenders, servers, or whoever the customer facing people are that are organizing the quote unquote reunion, that they're not allowed to do that and that they need to cancel the event. And then another way of thinking about it is if you think that publicity might not be bad, could you trade on the publicity in some way? Could you maybe say, yeah, have the reunion, but have it over at our establishment. After you find out that this is a potential problem, it makes sense to educate your staff of the value of the name and the reputation of the business and that they're not allowed to use the name or its reputation to reroute business to other businesses, to competitors. One likely outcome here, hopefully, the servers or the bartenders or whoever it is that's organizing the reunion would be sensitive. However, you shouldn't underestimate the power of self-justification in these situations. I wouldn't be surprised at all if they justify their behavior in some way. It's generally the way things go. They probably feel like, They deserve to do this. You're being unreasonable. You took advantage of them in some way and that they're entitled to to do what they're doing. That's why hopefully the letter to the competitor is more receptive and the competitor, in my experience, is much more likely to be sensitive to the situation for a number of reasons. A, they're in a similar boat in running a business. B, they're making money every night. They don't want to get sidetracked with a lawsuit. See, they don't want to get bad press. They could end up getting bad publicity for being an unfair competitor. And they won't want to risk losing the profits from that event by advertising it under your business's name. It's likely that the competitor will be more sensitive. It's not guaranteed. If you're able to, you might try to get in front of a judge for a temporary restraining order, but you need to move very quickly to accomplish that. And what you'll do is show up to, if you're in Harris County, the ancillary court with a lawsuit that includes an application for temporary and permanent injunctions and present your application for temporary restraining order to the ancillary court on the day that you file your lawsuit. There's a lot more details that go into that that are beyond the scope of this episode, but it is a possibility 
for One Way to Go. I hope that, that this hypothetical provided some value and some practical insight into how trademark infringement issues can arise and some practical takeaways on how they might be dealt with in a way that minimizes harm to the business, to the reputation of the business, minimizes the harm to customer relationships and competitors' relationships, while at the same time respecting the value in the name of the business. Unfortunately, as much as we might want to say, I don't want to cause any drama by sending these letters, failure to do so when your trademark's being infringed can down the road lead to arguments that you've abandoned the protectable nature of the trademark by letting other people use it and not enforcing your rights or acquiescence, which is very similar, where you've basically let people use your mark for other purposes. And as a result of that, you lose the protectability inherent to the mark. Policing marks is very important in order to protect their value. So I'll just leave you with the encouragement to protect your business's property, not just the physical property, including the building, the tables, the chairs, the equipment, but also the intellectual property, which includes the name and the goodwill associated with the business. Disclaimer, this audio is for informational purposes only and should not be misinterpreted as legal or other professional advice. If you have a legal question, you should consult with an attorney in your jurisdiction. This is Jason Keith thanking you for listening to the Keith Law PLLC podcast.